Um, ben Friedman is a, a graduate of Dartmouth College and a PhD candidate in political science and an affiliate at the Security Studies Program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Ben Friedman. All right, well, thanks, everybody, for uh, coming out. I, uh, I glanced at the registration list, too, and, uh, you know, uh, this being D.C., it's, it's not surprising that Kurt is right. There's a, there is a lot of uh, expertise in the room, and uh, this being D.C., uh, I'm sure you all think I mean you, uh, so I, uh, I, won't, I won't disabuse you of that. Um, I'm going to talk about the, the paper uh, Chris Preble and I wrote, uh, Budgetary Savings from Military Restraint, which is outside. Uh, there we outline uh, 1.2 trillion cuts uh, in defense spending over 10 years uh, compared to current defense, uh, projected defense spending, which has changed a little, as we'll discuss. So it's, it will be a little off because of that. Um, and uh, we also give a rationale uh, for those cuts, what we call a strategy of restraint, which is what I'm going to talk about today. And then Chris is going to talk more about the detail of the cuts. So in this Congress, we have a, a political situation for the first time uh, in a while, since maybe the mid to late 90s, where defense budget cuts are likely. And, and we'll see what happens. Uh, we have the continuing resolution uh, expiring in March. So that's one defense budget. And then we have the next def defense budget right on its heels. So this will come up quick. We have Democrats uh, worried that spending restraint will uh, cut into domestic spending. And we got Republicans that have been talking about uh, fiscal restraint so much that there's some, at least, are starting to take themselves seriously, uh, seriously enough, at least, to reconsider the longstanding practice of considering the Pentagon to be an honorary member of the private sector, uh, to steal a line from the American Conservative magazine, and uh, therefore to scrutinize the $700 billion plus that, that we give it every year. And we've had uh, uh, Mitch McConnell and uh, Eric Cantor both say in the last couple weeks uh, that defense spending ought to be on the table for any deficit reduction package. We have the Bowles-Simpson deficit reduction uh, plan that got 18 out of uh, uh, 11 out of 18 votes on, on the commission, uh, which calls for roughly 10% cuts in defense spending compared to FY 2010. Um, now, if you think, as Secretary Gates does, that that would uh, be catastrophic for the military, I note that it's, it's coming from a budget that's grown... Uh, 50 percent, even in adjusting for inflation since 1998, leaving out the wars, uh, so that we now spend more on non-war defense spending than we did at the height of the Cold uh, War, at least in 1985, in the middle of the Reagan buildup, absent a Cold War-type enemy. The Secretary of Defense's uh, response to this has been, number one, to create an efficiency initiative uh, to try to make defense spending more productive, more tooth, less tail, less administration, more force structure, and thus less subject to pressure for savings. And uh, second, he, he recently announced uh, cuts of uh, $78 billion over five years from defense spending, uh, which is uh, contrary to a lot of uh, what we've been reading in the press, at least the headlines. It's, it's just a cut to planned spending, and, and defense spending will continue to growth, albeit at a slightly uh, 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 slower clip. But I, I think that despite uh, Gates' effort to try to slow things down, I think uh, the cuts are going to be uh, infectious and, and uh, his proposals will be insufficient and I think more likely. So what I want to talk about is, as I said, uh, uh, how to cut defense spending. And I, I think there are really three uh, approaches to doing it. The first is to do the same thing with less money and uh, say you're going to be more efficient. You get rid of waste and overhead and stuff like that. The second is the Nike way, uh, just do it, cut spending, and hope that it, it triggers efficiency gains and a reprioritization of ambitions, uh, which is to say uh, strategic change. And the third is, is to start with strategy, to do less 
and then try to save money uh, as a result. Now, uh, efficiency, the first method, is uh, uh, like children and federal holidays, something that pretty much everybody in Washington can be for, uh, which explains both why this is the most popular method and why it promises to save the least. Uh, that's because uh, what seems inefficient from a, from a cost-benefit benefit or auditor-type type standpoint is often politically efficient. The, uh, the uh, benefits are concentrated and the costs are generally diffuse. They come out as deficits or, or higher taxes. Um, so for me, the, the search for efficiency in the Pentagon is kind of like the search for booze in the movie The Untouchables. Um, there, there's a scene there where, where Malone, which is Sean Connery, um, and uh, Elliot Ness, Kevin Costner, or conduct what turns out to be their first successful liquor raid. And uh, they're in downtown Chicago across the street from a police station, and Malone looks at Ness. Um, I'm sorry, uh, Ness says to uh, Malone, looking at the uh, police station, he says, what, here? And uh, Malone says, Mr. Ness, everybody knows where the booze is. The problem isn't finding it. The problem is who wants to cross Capone. And so to me, the problem with saving money in government, including DOD, is not finding things to cut, but finding a way to cut them, to overcome political opposition. And you see this uh, in lots of ways in, in recent uh, months, but you know, Joint Forces Command is an example. The secretary decided we ought to shutter that, and he had to do it over a big fight from uh, you know, half the Virginia or the whole Virginia uh, congressional delegation. In the end, uh, the White House had to compromise and say half the jobs from the command will remain. <clears throat> And after that, it gets harder to cut things. So uh, one virtue of, of economic downturns is that to some extent it lessens this problem, that it, it concentrates the cost of spending by, by uh, forcing some choices. Uh, so the prospect of reduced spending or even slowed spending threatens uh, political truces that luxury bought. It heightens competition among programs. It sharpens debate. Uh, and that's sort of why we're here today. Austerity is a good auditor. Uh, and the same uh, effect holds within DOD, which is why the second way of cutting defense spending is not as crazy. The Nike just do away is not as crazy as it some, sometimes sounds. Um, reduced budgets will encourage uh, the services to find efficiencies themselves to protect their favored missions. So if you take the example of the, uh, the Joint Strike Fighter, the uh, short takeoff and vertical uh, uh, landing version, Stovall version, JSFB, uh, the, the Navy is the one putting a lot of pressure on that program, uh, fighting against the Marines, and I think they're doing that because of pressure uh, on their budget, and you'll see more of that as, as uh, budgets get squeezed. And that's good news because that, that program's not necessary. The doctrinal basis for it is, is weak. If, 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 you know, it's, it's meant to fly off amphibious assault ships to support Marines ashore, but uh, we have carriers to do that. So if the Marines are doing something, uh, where they uh, need air support, well, we're going to send a carrier. So why do we need uh, these, uh, these aircraft? Um, now, the defense portion of, of the Bull-Simpson deficit reduction plan is, is I think, useful. It's, it's helpful uh, politically, but it relies too much on, on these methods, on these first two methods of cutting defense spending. Almost half its cuts come from some kind of um, overhead or administrative cuts, uh, and, and a lot of the rest is, is savings to uh, personnel spending. Um, and uh, it says nothing beyond one sort of vague bullet point about, about strategy. So I think that's, that's bad policy and politics because the cuts are somewhat imaginary um, and uh, they can still get dinged for overburdening the force. So what we advocate is the uh, third or strategic path to cuts where you start with more modest defense goals uh, and uh, uh, that's what we call restraint. 
Uh, today in the United States, we have documents that call themselves defense strategy, but they're really neither defense nor strategy. Uh, because of luxury, uh, we, we spend too much and choose too little. Uh, we sort of pile responsibilities and commitments on the military. And I, I think the recent or most recent quadrennial defense review is an example. It's more of a list of objectives and hopes uh, than a method of choosing among them, which is the point of strategy. So restraint means husbanding American power and wealth rather than dissipating it by spreading promises and forces uh, willy-nilly, drawing us into conflicts that we could probably avoid. So there are sort of four uh, guiding uh, strategic insights that are in our paper uh, that, that, uh, that I, I'll mention real quick. The first is, is that we don't need to defend Europe from nothing and uh, Japan, South Korea, and others from dangers that they could afford to meet themselves. Uh, we committed to defend these nations when they were weaker and, uh, than enemies that we thought threatened us. And now they've uh, grown wealthy, and the new deal is that we agree to defend them and they agree to let us. And uh, I think that causes two problems, free riding and, and moral hazard. Free riding is where they spend less on defense, uh, since we provide it. And uh, since money is fungible, that means we're effectively subsidizing their generous social welfare programs. And I, I don't blame them uh, for this, uh, just as I don't blame uh, you guys for uh, eating uh, the free sandwiches and knickknacks that the Cato Institute provided you. It's our fault. Um, and moral hazard is where our allies engage in, uh, in reckless behavior under, under the assumption that we'll bail them out. And uh, you see this in, in lots of little ways and big ways. You see it in Japan, I think, with the leaders constantly going to this war uh, shrine uh, for war criminals that enrages the Chinese. You see it in Israel. Um, you see it in Taiwan and even in places like Georgia uh, that we've not formally agreed to defend, thankfully, but uh, thought maybe they had some sort of uh, defense guarantee from the United States. So we're providing disincentives for some, in some ways for accommodation among neighboring states. Uh, and I'd also add that letting our allies be their own first line of defense is not akin to renouncing them or abandoning geopolitics. I think we'd get along just fine with them, absent defense commitments, because we and they have lots of reasons to do so. And by the way, the, the, we don't save a lot of money by getting rid of bases in these countries. We save a lot of money by getting rid of commitments that we have to put force structure behind. The second insight that underlies our paper is that occupying and trying to fix failed states with ground forces is not a good counterterrorism method. Uh, one reason is that historically, occupation tends to cause terrorism against occupying countries, not prevent it. And second is that we've learned the hard way in recent years that we have, while we have the power to occupy weak states uh, at, at, for a while at great cost and blood and treasure, we lack the power to fix them uh, by organizing their politics, which is really what counterinsurgency doctrine is about. And I'd say, by the way, that skepticism about, about counterinsurgency really ought not to be an exclusive uh, province of the left. Um, you know, if you doubt that the federal government can reliably deliver the mail in Pittsburgh, I think you ought to doubt that it can deliver democracy to Mesopotamia or Afghanistan. Um, third, I, I think it's hubristic uh, and also uh, not particularly conservative to say that we alone in the United States uh, can provide international stability, that we're sort of the authors of history, uh, that uh, uh, through our overseas bases and naval patrols, we stabilize regions uh, and thus protect trade. Uh, I think uh, that overestimates both our contribution to, uh, to stability and underestimates the ability of other states to provide stability locally if we don't. And I think it also uh, overstates the degree to which trade is brittle. Uh, and dependent on, on military deployments. And I'm happy to elaborate on that point, which is a rather es esoteric one uh, in the Q&A. 
Finally, uh, sort of the dirty secret, I think, of American defense politics is that we're pretty safe here in the United States um, before we send one, uh, one soldier abroad because of wealth, uh, because of geography and technology, starting with uh, nukes. Um, what passes for enemies now uh, is uh, really quite limited compared to the past, compared to other great powers. Uh, and, and I think that's why people, uh, hawks, uh, resort to a lot of arguments about the need to, for the United States to create global stability. We've sort of run out of uh, threats that we can uh, credibly inflate enough to justify our whole military budget using normal arguments. Um, and again, I'm not going to run through all the uh, different countries in the world that we're told we're supposed to worry about to justify our defense budget, but it's, it's in our paper, and I'm certainly happy to talk about it more. I'll just say that as to the, the constellation of, of uh, jihadists and their fellow travelers that we refer to as al-Qaeda, well, uh, there's certainly a problem, but I think hardly an existential threat uh, worthy of, of comparison to Nazi Germany or uh, continuous warfare. I think they're instead best dealt with uh, by intelligence, policing, and, and where the military is used, uh, cheap uh, niche capability, uh, you know, drones, uh, 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 surveillance technology, of course, and special operations forces, not the Army, not the Navy, not the Air Force. Um, so to sort of finish up, um, I, I think, you know, we get, we get dinged a lot. People say this is uh, isolationist and an abandonment of our, uh, our duty, our moral duty to spread liberalism. So I just want to address that in a couple words before I finish. I'm, I'm for an ethic of, of responsibility that, that gives pride of place to possible goods at home rather than tracing, uh, chasing ideological dreams abroad. I think our respons responsibilities start here. Um, I, I, I will say uh, for Cato, we're, we're not isolationists. We want freer trade. We want diplomacy. We want more immigration. Uh, we don't want to plan for no wars. We want to plan for fewer. Um, and, and though I'm more skeptical than most people about the virtues of hegemony, uh, I will say that, that with the military that we'd like to have, uh, we'd still have military preeminence by a mile. Um, it would require the American taxpayer to pay uh, 35 or 40 percent of world military spending instead of half. Um, and uh, I just say that I think that's only isolationist compared to a very bloated idea of what our security requires. And uh, I'm sort of with uh, Walter Lippmann, who, uh, who said he was happy to be called an isolationist compared to the people who thought they could run the world. So uh, I'll leave it there and, and look forward to questions. <clears throat> All right. Thanks, Ben. Next up, we have Christopher Preble. He's the director of foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. He's the author of three books, including The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free, uh, and John F. Kennedy and the Missile Gap, which explores the political economy of military spending during the 50s and 60s. Purple is also the lead author of Exiting Iraq, How the U.S. Must End the Occupation and Renew the War Against Al-Qaeda. And he co-edited uh, with Jim Harper and Benjamin Friedman, Terrorizing Ourselves. Before joining Cato in 2003, he taught history at St. Cloud State University and Temple University. Purple was actually a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy and served on board the USS Ticonderoga from 1990 to 1993 and is a Gulf War veteran. And he holds a Ph.D. in history from Temple University. <clears throat> thanks, Kurt. And thanks to all of you for attending and uh, for your patience and standing there in the back. I want to very quickly run through, I hate PowerPoint for the record, uh, but I'm going to run through just a few quick slides to try to put some of these spending cuts uh, into perspective. To 
briefly repeat what Ben said and to kind of give you an overview of my remarks in the next few minutes. Uh, these cuts are feasible politically, I think. I think Grover's going to speak to that, too. Uh, but most importantly, to make cuts without a strategic shift, I think, is fundamentally uh, unwise and unfair to the men and women in uniform. And so that's a point that we stress, that I've stressed repeatedly in my work and that we stress again in this paper. Um, so just a few quick graphs that some of you, I'm sure, have already seen, okay? But this is uh, from a couple years ago, the military balance, double I double S, every year comes out with a military balance, which I think is the best source for making country-to-country uh, -country comparisons. And this is the number uh, for uh, total U.S. military spending relative to the rest of the world, just under half. If you fold in other security-related expenses, including intelligence, which is not entirely captured in the defense budget, it's probably over half. But for the sake of argument, we say nearly half of all global military spending is spent by the United States. Um, here is a number that I like to focus on a bit more, which is per capita spending, okay? And this is really highlights the point that Ben made a few minutes ago about the way in which U.S. military spending, in effect, subsidizes other countries to spend far less on their security than they might otherwise choose to do. So, for example, um, uh, the U.S. Uh, today, each man, woman, and child spends about $2,700 uh, on national security, broadly defined, uh, uh, Japan, it's about $330. Uh, Brits and the French are just uh, north and south of $1,000 apiece. Uh, and this gives you a sense of the disparity. I also use the, the, you know, the inflection point for U.S. military spending was 1998, where it really moved, started moving up. Uh, ben alluded to that. And you can see how much faster ours has grown relative uh, to the rest of the world, which has uh, even gone down in a few places. Here's the statistic uh, that I think everyone should have burned in their brain. Uh, you're going to hear a lot of people talk about defense spending as a share of GDP, which is either irrelevant or misleading, likely both. Uh, this is the number that matters. In real inflation-adjusted dollars today, the United States spends more on defense than at any time during the Cold War, more than during Korea, more than during Vietnam, more than during the Reagan buildup. Okay. And here is a statistic. I'm grateful to Winslow Wheeler for pulling together some of these numbers. He's at the Center for Defense Information. Many of you people know him. Because it helps to put into perspective just how much things have grown and where we would be today if we had merely held military spending constant. Okay? This is the DOD. Uh, this is the, the, the base budget you can see is the, the, the purple line, and including Iraq, the purple line includes Iraq and Afghanistan, the yellow line there. But even the base budget, the green line, okay, has risen that much more than if spending was held constant. Again, these are inflation-adjusted dollars at 2,000 levels. So having shown you those graphs, again, not earth-shattering. I, I, I didn't, you know, reinvent the wheel here. Uh, I just want to spend a few minutes talking about why uh, uh, these numbers aren't perhaps as important as they might seem. I'm just trying to set some context here because you're going to hear a lot, uh, you're hearing it already, about draconian cuts in the Pentagon, deep cuts in the Pentagon that Bob Gates has, has proposed to eviscerate uh, U.S. military strength. It's absurd. Okay, uh, by the by, the secretary's own admission, he is slowing the rate of growth. Only in Washington would this be considered a cut. Anywhere else outside of Washington, when you spend more than the year before, that's spending more. 
and spending increase. Okay, so we are not cutting. And again, we have to keep in mind where we started, the baseline. And whether you start in 2001 or the inflection point of 1998, U.S. military spending in real terms has grown dramatically. Go back to 2001, 42%. The base budget has grown 42% in real terms. And total spending, including the cost of the war, 72%. Okay? So that's where we are today. Um, you know, we lay out in this PA, uh, policy analysis, uh, budgetary savings through uh, restraint, uh, total cuts over 10 years amounting to $1.2 trillion. has been alluded. Uh, these proposals were made before Secretary Gates' latest round. I don't think it's going to make a huge difference in total cuts. We're actually working through the numbers now, and we're waiting to see the final budget submission for, uh, for FY 2012, uh, which should come out uh, sometime middle of next month. Uh, but if you go with $1.22 trillion against what was projected last year, about $6.5 trillion, that's a 19% reduction over 10 years. That sounds like a lot. If you were to cap... DOD spending at 2011 levels, $554 billion, roughly, uh, and not adjust for inflation over 10 years, that amounts to a savings of $982 billion, or 15%. So we are proposing uh, uh, 3% additional cuts beyond just holding for inflation. How do we do that? Okay. Well, Ben already alluded to this. We do that by proposing in two rounds, essentially, uh, a first set of cuts that make sense without any strategic change. Okay. And then a second round of cuts that make sense if we were to rethink the purpose of our military. Um, there, there are 19 proposals in all. They're in the policy analysis. They're also broken down in the downsizing, uh, the federal government website, Downsizing Defense, which is available online. Uh, so if, you, if you're uh, watching or you don't have the PA in your hands, you can go to the Downsizing Defense website. Let me just highlight a few of the line items that I think can make sense right now. In fact, uh, the Secretary stole a jump on us a little bit. The, the expeditionary fighting vehicle, which was always the low-hanging fruit, it's already it now has uh, been terminated by, or at least the Secretary Gates, if he gets his way, will terminate the program. Uh, that's the good news. It's not necessary. The bad news is the taxpayers have already spent $3 billion on a program that's delivered only prototypes. Uh, and the total savings are going to be offset a bit by buying or refurbishing uh, other landing vehicles in lieu of the expeditionary fighting vehicle. A couple other uh, items that have been on a lot of people's lists for a long time include the V-22 Osprey, uh, which is unnecessary and dangerous, uh, realigning the missile defense program, which is costly, uh, $60 billion over 10 years we estimate we could save. Um, we also think that if the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are coming to an end, as we are told that they are, not as fast as I would like, but they are coming to an end, uh, then you can at least roll back to where we were prior to Iraq and Afghanistan in the Marine Corps and the Army. Uh, Secretary Gates proposed some modest reductions in both the Army and Marine Corps, but he admitted that the force would be larger than the one that he inherited. Uh, and the question is why, if, by Gates' own admission, we are not going to be repeating wars like Iraq and Afghanistan, that is, regime change followed by long-term nation building, then why do we need a much larger army than the one he inherited? I don't know. Um, this is important because personnel are the most costly part 
of the defense budget, I think appropriately so, because in order to sustain an all-volunteer military, which we are uh, great advocates of, you do need to pay people well and compensate them fairly uh, relative to the civilian private economy. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that there are some r- modest reforms that can be made in compensation. But all in all, uh, our proposal is for a smaller force, an elite force, but one that remains well compensated relative to the private economy. Um, A few other points that if we were to go one step further and really rethink the permanent presence of U.S. forces in places like Europe, Korea, and Japan, uh, we could uh, affect another round of cuts that cut below where we were prior to 2000. Uh, one, in the paper, we propose an army, that, an active army of about 360,000 and the Marine Corps of about 145,000. <clears> Why do we do that? Because, as Ben points out, closing bases does not save you a lot of money. I know there's going to be a lot of support, especially for cutting bases overseas. I think that's fine. But if you merely relocate people from Okinawa to Fort Lewis, for example, you are not really saving that much money in the long term. You're still paying those people to really generate true savings. You have to reduce force structure. If we do that, we must also, I think, adopt restraint because we, had, we attempt, attempted in the 1990s. We did. We affected pretty substantial cuts in personnel in the 1990s, uh, but we gave those troops more things to do, and that's unfair and ultimately strategically unwise. Um, so that's the point that I want to emphasize because I think that of all the various um, uh, deficit reduction proposals that have been put out there, over the last year or so. And Ben and I, even before we collaborated on the PA, uh, we worked on the Sustainable Defense Task Force. This is the uh, effort led by Barney Frank and Ron Paul, which was published and and has gotten a fair amount of play. Domenici Rivlin has gotten a lot of attention, and obviously the president's own Deficit Reduction Commission, Bull Simpson. Uh, Gates' response to that has been, that's math, not strategy. Okay, Uh, And he's right, to a point. Okay? If you do not revisit what we ask the military to do, then to propose cuts is just math. Okay? And I think that's a fair criticism. But I really want to sharpen the point that Ben made about what our military is doing today and how that fits with uh, a, a conservative or libertarian or small government definition of a country's responsibilities and a government's responsibilities to itself. As I pointed out, we spend roughly what the rest of the world spends combined uh, we spend two and a half times more than the French and British, we individuals, Americans, uh, five times more than those citizens living in NATO, uh, and seven and a half times the average Japanese. Um, why? Because we have done for these countries what they should be doing for themselves. Uh, these people, the citizens of these countries, are not party to our social contract. And I think that's a really important point. From a, pa- a standpoint of basic fairness, The question is, why should Americans continue to spend in this way indefinitely to subsidize other countries' defenses? If they feel the need to spend more, so be it. Many of them might choose not to because it turns out they live in a fairly benign environment, and that's all to the good. You know, it kind of reminds me a little bit about foreign aid. Uh, You know, there are a lot of people here in Congress and and people out in the hinterland, for that matter. Foreign aid is routinely one of the most uh, despised things. Uh, And yet, that's what our military is doing, in effect, is providing foreign aid. Uh, It has the same effect. It builds dependency, uh, and it doesn't ultimately work. And when we find that we would like to have allies with both capabilities and the will to use their capabilities in places like Afghanistan, we find they don't have it and they don't wish to use it. Uh, And that's where we are. We are reaping what we sowed.
Um, so that's the point that I want to close with and, and to really emphasize uh, to please take a look at the proposals we put on the table to understand them in this strategic context. It is not merely a laundry list. It is connected to a strategic rationale, and we think it merits uh, a, a closer look, and we will be continuing to do a lot of work on this topic in the coming year. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thanks, Chris. I just want to take a quick little detour here. Sorry. Um, the downsizing government website that Cato has um, is not just defense spending. Uh, we also have proposed spending reforms and cuts, big cuts, uh, in the departments of agriculture, commerce, education, energy, health and human services, housing and urban development, transportation. And uh, I think we're going live with some other independent agencies like the Postal Service and the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, I understand Homeland Security, Homeland Security will be up in a, another month or two maybe. Um, so the website for that is just simply www.downsizinggovernment.org. So check it out. And there's also a link on the Cato website too. Yes, if you just go to cato.org over on the left-hand side, you'll see Downsizing Government and just click on that. All right. Uh, our final speaker today is Grover Norquist. He's president of Americans for Tax Reform, which is a taxpayer advocacy group he founded in 1985 at President Reagan's request. ATR is a coalition of taxpayer groups, individuals, and businesses opposed to higher taxes at the federal, state, and local levels. He is the author of the book, Leave Us Alone, Getting, Gover or Getting the Government's Hands Off Our Money, Our Guns, Our Lives, and he serves on the boards of the, the boards of directors of the National Rifle Association, the American Conservative Union, and the Nixon Center, which is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to explore ways of enhancing American security and prosperity while taking into account the legitimate perspectives of other nations. Mr. Norquist holds a Master's of Business Administration and a Bachelor of Arts degree in Economics, both from Harvard University. Mr. Norquist. Thank you. I, I run a taxpayer group. We try and keep taxes uh, somewhat down and spending somewhat under control. But I started uh, politically uh, as an anti-communist and came from a foreign policy perspective when I first got involved uh, in politics. Uh, and I think it's very important. I want to talk from the standpoint of, of center-right Reagan Republicans, because uh, they get to run the House now, uh, and have not always been involved in this conversation about how much is enough on defense. Uh, I think, to a certain extent, a lot of folks on the right assume they had to push. The left was against having enough defense to compete with the Soviet Union, and we just had to push for as much as we could get, and as much as we could get, given that the left was trying to undercut us, wasn't going to be enough, but so we just pushed as hard as we could get. And at some point, when the other team stopped pushing against us, uh, and when the Soviet Union disappeared, a lot of people on the right failed to notice that this wasn't quite the, 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 the there, were, there weren't guardrails here somewhere that, that they were somehow going to keep us uh, spending at a reasonable level. Uh, the other one is that Republicans and, and center-right activists, conservatives, really need to avoid falling into what we recognize uh, as the complete uh, disingenuousness of, of the left when they talk about uh, spending uh, as a synonym for concern. Now, we think it's silly when Democrats and liberals say, well, if you don't spend more money uh, on education, you don't care about education. We make a distinction between how much money the government spends on something like education in D.C. and how much education actually takes 
place. Uh, we recognize that spending is not a synonym for concern and it is not a synonym for results. And yet too often those on the center-right presume, they recognize, you go down a list of 115 different government programs, they say spending more doesn't necessarily get you more. They get to defense, cops, and prisons, and they go, well, spending more gets you more. Really? Always? Sometimes? Uh, and so I think it's, it's, it's helpful that we have that conversation uh, and, and keep that in mind uh, so that we don't end up being dishonest in our conversation as we sometimes view the other team as being less than honest when they equate spending other people's money and concern or results. The other one was uh, briefly mentioned. Cutting a budget is not the same thing as spending less than somebody else had imagined they might. Okay, um, Cutting a budget is to spend less t tomorrow than you spent today, not to spend less tomorrow than some third party thought would be fun to spend today. Um, and uh, budgeting against projections, or worse, projections of needs, uh, which are infinitely elastic on all government spending programs, uh, is problematic. And again, those in the center right, we recognize this immediately when you say, well, this is what the left does on welfare and education and any number of different projects. Yes, that's very dishonest. And how do we approach the defense budget uh, and military spending. Uh, and there's a, a model here uh, in, uh, for those in the center-right in terms of thinking this through, and that is a recent conversation that's just beginning to happen, although legislation's passed, so it's not just an idea, uh, and that is the rethinking that's taking place on right on crime, uh, which is a group of, of conservative uh, activist leaders, legislators, guys like uh, Gingrich and Ed Meese, who are trying to rethink um, what is uh, good uh, criminal justice policy? Is putting more people in prison for longer periods of time uh, who are guilty of violating some rule always a good idea, sometimes a good idea? How much money do you spend on it? Um, and is spending on the criminal justice system the same thing as reducing crime? Uh, and this is important, and I think the model here is that those in the center-right bring some credibility to the idea we want to fight crime and perhaps spend less money or fight crime but do it in different ways than we've been doing it in the past. The left doesn't have the, the same level of credibility because people don't, the independent voters don't view that they have credibility on, oh, we want to fight crime. Really? Where were you X? The same thing with defense. Center-right uh, political activists, Reagan Republicans, have credibility in saying we want to take national defense seriously but that doesn't mean you spend every dollar that some bureaucrat can imagine spending. And so I think it's particularly incumbent on those in the center-right, uh, one, because they can do in, in the debate what folks on the left, who might agree with them on a, a final number or even a strategy of where we get to, but they have credibility uh, with, with voters that does not exist on the left, both in criminal justice reform uh, and on defense spending uh, questions. Uh, also, if people on the center-right intend to run the government over the next 40 or 50 years, as opposed to stand on the side and whine about how other people are running the government, we ought to start with those bits of the government that we think ought to exist. Uh, and if you were building from scratch, there'd be a defense department. There may be some other buildings in this town that would not be 
built if we were starting from scratch? If we weren't doing it already, would you start, asks Drucker. Uh, and the answer is having national defense to keep the Canadians on their side of the border is probably one of the places you'd start, and you would want to have a national defense. So how about having center-right Repub Reagan Republicans decide that we will focus on doing that properly and well while the other team messes up much of the rest of the government while we busy figure out how to shut it down, but let's at least run correctly, properly, well, that part which we recognize and argue is actually like shows up in the Constitution from time to time. Um, I, I do want to mention you talked about where we go from here. A, a week or so ago I made the suggestion that on the center right we have a discussion about conversation, about how long the occupation of Afghanistan continues, how much are we spending on it, what's, what's the, could we get some numbers, how long do we plan to be there, what does winning like, what are we doing, where are we going? Why are we doing it? Um, and I think that having that conversation is necessary and important. And again, on not just on defense spending, but on some of these policy questions, too many on the right say, well, the Republican president said we needed to do this, and I saluted, and I haven't thought about it in 10 years. Um, and the question is, do you really want to take, you know, do you want to have inertia guide policy? Well, we did it 10 years ago, so we're going to keep doing it for another 10 years, for 100 years, for six months? What, what are we thinking? Uh, and just because fearless leaders said it was a good idea is not necessarily a good reason to continue a policy. The flip side of that is the left's against it, so we're for it. This, this is the old, the left likes whales and they don't like nuclear weapons, so we must be for nuking the whales. Um, that, you know, that works from time to time. Vote against Bella Abzug. I get it, okay? If you, if you don't know what else is going on, vote against the way Bella Abzug shows up on the board. But that's not really a plan, and it doesn't work all the time, and it's really not the way to reason to something. Uh, and perhaps just because somebody on the left criticized Bush's approach is not necessarily uh, an argument that we can't rethink this. So we ought to be having, again, a conversation. Uh, and I, I was a little bit surprised at the weakness of the advocates of the status quo, because I thought let's have a conversation, they'd go, yes, let's have a conversation. Let me tell you the ten reasons why this that's going on is on purpose and this is what we planned and this is good and you're missing all the good bits uh, and it really is the French are paying for it. Or there's some, you know, some collection of arguments that, that some of us might have missed. Uh, instead, we sort of got um, shut up, he explained, um, and we've always done it this way, uh, which is the letters you see. We've always spent this much money, so I don't know what you're whining about. Um, you know, that, that wasn't a good argument for any number, <clears throat> for, you know, for polygamy or any number of things that have been going on for large periods of time. Um, that said, again, I think this is something where the center-right really needs to focus uh, on these questions of how much we spend and on what. And again, to have a conversation... And the good news is that because of the credibility, because of the history of the Cold War and so on, the center-right has a credibility the left does not have. They can take this forward in ways uh, that a Democratic president can't. Um, and the other argument you sometimes get is, well, if you save all the money that could be saved in defense, it doesn't solve all the world's problems. It doesn't solve all the budget problems. Well, that's an argument against taking the first step on any jury a journey. That's an argument against doing anything because... That which you do today won't solve all the world's problems. And that's true on all questions of budget restraint. No one decision is going to solve all of our uh, concerns, but that's not a grown-up argument against making progress in that direction. Thank you.
All right. Thanks, everybody. At this point, the floor is open for your questions. Uh, we're big on privacy at Cato, so if you don't want to identify yourself, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, you're certainly welcome to. Yes, sir. I'm happy to speak to that. Uh, unfortunately, we, we had an event uh, commemorating the 50th anniversary of the military-industrial complex last week, which I'm sorry that you missed. The good news is all of Cato events are archived on our website, and you can watch the entire proceedings. It was an outstanding com uh, discussion, two panels, about uh, what Eisenhower's words meant. The one thing that I would say in response to your question, and I think echoes some of what Grover said, is uh, – there are some in the conservative movement, broadly defined, or in the Republican Party, who would write Eisenhower's memory out of the history books um, because he's not the right kind of Republican, because he was the kind of Republican that asked from time to time, is this necessary? Is this spending essential to our security? Why are you proposing to build a bomber that you say you don't need? Ah, it's because of the jobs in District X, Y, or Z, which was an argument that drove him over the wall on numerous occasions. Uh, the subject of my first book, John F. Kennedy and the Missile Gap. Um, so I think that, again, there is a, a, a political constituency existed in the 50s and 60s that took fiscal discipline seriously and married fis fiscal discipline to uh, military spending. And, again, the great irony, it's forgotten, is that uh, Eisenhower was knocked by liberal Democrats for not spending enough on defense. So I, this is a point that I emphasized last week, and I... Uh, I encourage you to take a look at that that event but i do think that that a lot of the a lot of that speech goes well beyond the warning about the military industrial complex it's really about finding a balance between our uh security needs and our fiscal health it, actually the uh, nixon center had julie and david eisenhower in to talk about their new book about eisenhower's years at, after the presidency where um, it's also on, online and a very good analysis along that line. I thought Eisenhower did a very interesting thing. Was He had told, according to them, told um, Kennedy that he wouldn't argue with him or come back and whack at him once he left the White House as long as he didn't change the name of Dulles Airport uh, or change or recognize Red China. I'll just uh, say – And one second. And then when right. Nixon came to visit him in 67 and said it's time to recognize China and – begin to bring it away from Russia as part of our foreign policy, Eisenhower by then had actually shifted in his own view. So sometimes you could spend X amount of money to figure out how to blow up Red China, or you could take a different approach. And Eisenhower over time learned on that one. Just real quick, I, I think that when I talk about the um, uh, diffuse costs and concentrated benefits of defense programs, that's in a sense what I'm talking about. And I would just repeat what I said, that these forces are easier to overcome in times of fiscal restraint. It's, you know, uh, it's, we do cancel some programs. We, we, uh, it's not like the military-industrial complex or the jobs argument always wins, and it wins less in, in times like these. And it, it, that's one reason why defense, the defense budget is one, the one part of the federal uh, budget that actually goes down from time to time. Yes, sir, in the front. 
Bob. You, sir. Yeah. Uh, I'm Bob Rogers from The Nation magazine. You, you may know that um, a portion of the Foreign Policy Institute and uh, AEI and Heritage have kind of banded together into a fortress to defend against the assault on the Pentagon. The defending defense thing? Yes, defending defense. Comment a little bit about that, and specifically on Afghanistan. Um, you can make the case, I think Republicans can make the case, that Obama, by tripling the American commitment there, has done what Bush, whatever you want to say about his Afghanistan, didn't even come close to what, yet it's the Republicans in Congress who really have become the, the you know, rock of Gibraltar in Obama's Afghanistan policy for some reason, whereas it's the Democrats who are all the way up to Pelosi are grumbling. So is there a way of, of making common cause politically on Afghanistan, or are the Republicans hopeless on this topic. Now they have new ones coming in. I don't know. Go ahead. Um, <clears throat> you'd mentioned the common AEI heritage and uh, the Foreign Policy Institute had uh, come up with a joint statement against reducing the budget at all, including rolling the increases in spending from first the wars, now the occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, into the baseline budget. Okay, which they spent eight years telling me they were never going to do. Okay, and the whole pur- purpose of having them separately was to keep them out of the baseline budget. Now some people are going, oh, that's now part of our baseline budget for national defense. Um, I thought so highly of their piece, I passed it out today because I wanted everybody to have it. Um, read it. The <laughs> arguments for maintaining the present level of spending include that food stamps have gone up too. You know, compelling arguments like we've done this before. Um, And the alternative is um, indiscriminate budget slashing. Any cutting would be indiscriminate budget slashing. Um, If this is the three very smart people, this is their best argument. We really need a conversation, okay? Um, Because this is not a serious argument for the status quo. But again, it's an argument, and it's worth reading, but wow, I mean, you just go, oh, the Pentagon would like, some people at the Pentagon, peer-reviewed, you know, requests for more money. Peer reviews are, all my friends agree with me. Um, you know, so I, I did want to share that with everybody because I think it's one of the strongest arguments um, for a rethink on some of this stuff. Or, or in some people cases, a think at all. You had mentioned this, the Republican unanimity on stuff. I... Um, MC'd, chaired a panel at uh, Cato... Yeah, about a year, not quite a year ago. Yeah, About a year ago. <clears throat> and there were three Republican congressmen there. And too late in this conversation, I asked the $64,000 question. I said, um, given after the overthrow of the Saddam Hussein regime, uh, we decided to stay. What, how many of your fellow Republican congressmen think that was a mistake. And all three said all. Not some, not most. They said all. Now, do they go and say that on TV? No. But that's why I think there's more of a conversation to be had than has happened. And perhaps this is an area, if not on domestic tax policy, where we could have a nonpartisan bipartisan conversation about where to go. And frankly, you know, the guys around Obama may feel that if, if they don't keep ramping up on 
foreign commitments that the Republicans will throw a rock at the back of their head and therefore they're not going to do what they might think is good policy for political reasons. Having a conversation on the right frees up the Obama administration to perhaps govern as, as they said they were going to and as Bush said he was going to um, because they both campaigned actually quite differently than we've governed so far on the issue of occupations. Just want to note, uh, in my capacity of doing government affairs, I've definitely noticed a a difference in tone uh, on this question over the last uh, three and a half years or so that I've been at Cato. Um, In the beginning, um, Republicans seemed to not be very interested in talking about this at all. Uh, In the last year or two, uh, maybe it has to do with anti-Obama politics. Uh, I don't get that sense from them, but maybe there's some of that there. Uh, But I do get the sense that uh, a lot more Republicans are reevaluating what we're doing over there. And uh, I've even had some staffers tell me that their boss has wanted to vote for um, phasing down, but um, just wasn't quite ready to make that political step quite yet. Yeah. Um, and, and the polling data is there to, to show both Republicans and Democrats how to do this. There was the uh, poll that was done on the Afghan review just recently of, of, um, of Tea Partiers and Independents, and they thought everything done to date in Afghanistan was proper and useful. But in the future, it should be done completely differently. Okay? <laughs> um, and, and I think that's not a bad assessment of where the country is. People are not going to say, we made a mistake, or Republicans won't criticize Bush, or now Democrats won't criticize Obama for putting more troops in. But there may be a willingness to say, if we all agree not to look backwards and take pot shots for political purposes, but moving forward, perhaps there's a different approach and how long we commit to stay or what we're trying to do while we're there. So I, I think there is, you can go back and laugh at people. Everything's right, but it needs to be radically changed. But I'm not sure that's completely un, difficult to understand in, in terms of people don't like to criticize the country's foreign policy decisions looking backwards, but they are open to perhaps a new approach in the future. I should also note we've had a number of great conversations with Democrats in both the House and the Senate, and uh, a great many of them have an appetite for doing something. Um, some are kind of falling in line behind Obama, so there's a little bit of that going on as well. But uh, I do think there's potential for some bipartisan movement on this. All right. Gentleman in the middle there. Good questions, both. I, I think they go together. The um, the argument that I have made repeatedly, and we, we do spell it out a bit in the paper, uh, is that uh, there can be some modifications to compensation and the way in which compensation is calculated for military uh, ser- servicemen and women um, 
But those are not going to generate enormous savings. The real savings are going to come from force structure reductions, okay, and strength reductions. Again, remembering that the Army and, and Marine Corps have grown substantially since 2001. So the first round of cuts puts us back to where we were with the Army and Marine Corps pre-Iraq, okay? Then an additional round, a second round, if you were to draw down the overseas presence and, and not merely relocate those forces back to CONUS but demobilize them, okay? It may, it may mean a larger reserve. In fact, we left ourselves some wiggle room in the paper. We're really talking just about active duty forces. It doesn't mean there would be commensurate cuts in the, in the reserves. Maybe the reserves would not be cut as much. Uh, but in terms of active duty, which is where the real costs come, that's where you're going to get savings. Can we find some, I think, sensible programmatic changes? TRICARE fees is the one that Secretary Gates has brought up on numerous occasions. Can we draw some distinctions between retirees who joined the military under a different social contract that didn't include TRICARE and are now full, are employed full-time and, and not choosing to make use of their, employee, their employer's health plans because TRICARE costs one-tenth as much. That's a kind of conversation which, frankly, if we can't have that conversation, we can't really talk about anything at all because the Secretary has, has raised this a number of times, and I think it's, it makes sense. It does also come down to a question of basic fairness. As far as the second question, um, we talk in the paper about bringing power to bear and using our lift and both sea and airlift capability for uh, uh, bringing force to bear and not needing to be in places forward deployed indefinitely to do that. Um, you can make an argument. I think that with respect to the Navy force structure, for example, we take a shot at, at, at some of the large deck carriers. You know, we've been talking about, about transitioning to unmanned vehicles. Where is the Navy on that? Why is it we continue to plan for 90,000-ton vessels launching manned aircraft, whatever happened to unmanned vehicles? Where's the, where's the alternative there? I think there are serious questions to be raised about the littoral combat ship, which is the costs are exploding and the mission is, in my mind, dubious. Um, But having said that, I think that the Army and Marine Corps are cut more deeply than the Navy and the Air Force under our plan because we, quite explicitly, uh, do not plan uh, uh, large-scale, indefinite, uh, occupations on the order of Iraq and Afghanistan, and that should allow uh, fairly substantial reductions in personnel in those two services. Uh, the gentleman in the front here. I'll, I'll repeat the question if we need to. Go ahead. Uh, you were talking about, I think the word modifier you used was expected cuts or Yes. <laughs> right. And my question is, is was, what do you think the mechanism will be for that? Why do you think that that's going to happen, given that last year Gates' cuts or non-cuts right. had such a poor reaction from the armed services community? And one of the reactions from the senators was, right. whatever you cut from your budget, you would be able to keep in your budget. Right. And, and, and secondarily with that, um, you were mentioning the big cuts being with the personnel. Um, could you explicate a little bit more about what you mean? Do you mean laying off American soldiers or just 
Not recruiting. No, you can you can deal with the with the end strength reductions through attrition, and you don't you don't need to you you, you know again. I, I was serving in the early 1990s. There were early retirement packages not long after I got out, and a number of people took op, took advantage of those. But I really think you do it on the on the input side, on the recruiting side, not so much on the existing. And again, we may one of the other programmatic changes to just a related point is is that. You know, do we still want to plan for a military on the basis of a 20-year career? Or are, can we be more flexible in terms of benefits, perhaps providing benefits at less than 20 or longer than 20? And can we incentivize people to stay in the service longer? I think we're losing a lot of uh, talent for people who are 43 or 44 years old uh, and, then, and then taking their, their talents elsewhere. Um, What's changed from last year? Well, Congress has changed, and the class of incoming members includes a number of people who I think take fiscal discipline very seriously. Not that the previous Congress didn't have some that did, but I think it's clear that a number of new members were elected on a promise of fiscal discipline, and because of the work of Grover, among others, um, they are not going to be inclined to solve the fiscal problem by raising taxes. So that should provide greater impetus for cuts, spending cuts, um, and that's, that's what I think is happening. And I think, again, yeah, there's been some signs of that already, but we're going to have to wait and see when the, when the formal budget uh, request comes through next month. I also think that the, the budget committees are going to matter more now uh, this, this, this term and in the future because of all the pressure on the budget and particularly if there's some sort of deficit deal and the Armed Services Committee and the appropriators will matter less and the leadership potentially could um, just shove top lines down their throat. When Reagan wanted to build up military spending in the face of the Soviet Union, uh, every dollar spent on missiles cost $3 versus $2 because the government was doing it. Uh, but then there's a third dollar to buy the, the congressional – for social welfare spending to buy the votes to get the defense spending. So when you had the peace dividend flow with the end of the Soviet Union, the savings was not just you were spending some less on defense. You were no longer buying votes for that. Uh, and when the, when folks on the left would say, well, what do you give us you know, to vote for this additional stuff? Said, we don't want the additional stuff, so we're not going to give you anything to vote for it. Uh, and the the pressure – the, the, da- the pressure on spending dropped not just in defense, but on domestic discretionary as well. And that's why it's particularly important that Mitch McConnell and Cantor uh, and the 27 – we passed out the letter at 27 center-right taxpayer spending groups all saying look at defense too because when you look at defense, it helps you reduce overall all spending. And if you say we're not doing any defense spending, then the other team goes, well, we're not doing anything until you do. And you end up not having any spending restraint at all. It's 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 part of a whole. It's not it, it's not the only dollar to be cut. It's not even necessarily the biggest dollar savings available. But without it, you don't you don't get to the rest of the conversation. All right. This will be the last question. Yes, ma'am. <clears throat> Yeah. 
Right now, the, the United States has uh, 11 carrier battle groups, and China has none. Um, so uh, it's going to have to be a really big swoop for them to swoop in. Uh, so I, I would just say that our margin of superiority vis-a-vis any potential enemy is large. And I would also say that our security is divisible from that of a lot of our allies. How, how, to me, uh, you know, the, the Germans uh, can choose how much they want to spend on defense, and we ought to choose too. And it's, it's not the case that if they spend less, we should spend more. If we spend less, they should spend more. I don't think the, there's a big threat in Europe that, that makes that uh, the case. It's also just, it's interesting that you lump India together with Russia and China. Because um, a lot of my uh, work is is based on the on the notion of uh, regional balances of power, and it's not clear to me uh, that that uh, India, Russia, and China are uh, inclined or even likely uh, to band together, as you say. If anything, I think. Okay. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And I th- my, my response to that would be they have greater interests in their strategic backyard than we do, and I say let them play a larger role in their strategic backyard. Um, uh, I agree with Ben that in the case of Europe it gets a little more complicated because uh, a lot of the sources of conflict that we worried so much about have been, uh, you know, have been washed away. Um, and I think uh, that... I go back to what I said earlier about a question of basic fairness for American taxpayers. Why is it that American taxpayers have subsidized this state of affairs for 60 years? Well, I can explain why we did for the first 30 or 40. I was a Cold Warrior, too. I joined the Navy when we were fighting the big, bad Soviet bear, okay? And I'm glad we won. But I I really struggle as a scholar to understand what has happened since 1989 or 1990, and I think I think Ben puts it quite well um, that that we have allowed inertia as much as anything uh, to drive this. And when there was a perfectly legitimate strategic rationale, when our allies were weak and our adversaries were the same, we had the same adversaries and same concerns. It is harder and harder to sustain that logic as we go farther and farther away from the demise of the Soviet Union. One of the advantages of the United States is, unlike the Balkans, we have less history and we don't remember it, um, and we don't focus on it, which is healthy, okay? But we should have some <laughs> understanding of, of history at some point. And there was this argument by some of the advocates of the present status quo uh, back at the beginning of the Bush years that, well, we were – our parents had – were at daggers drawn with the Soviet Union. We'll be at daggers drawn with China. And really? Why? Why does this? And then they decided instead of a billion Chinese, they'd be at daggers drawn with a billion Muslims, uh, and they may shift again. But but this sense that we have to be at daggers drawn with somebody is a historic for the United States. I mean, I I don't know what history they're looking at that we've somehow been this military camp that's always you know been at the barricades, you know, the Scots and the British or something, or the French and the Germans. This is not our history. This is a recent phenomenon that came about with you know, Marxist-Leninism in the Soviet Union. Um, and that's not there anymore. We broke it up into teeny little pieces. Um, so I, I just, I, I, buy, I think it's inertia. I mean, it's a whole bunch of guys doing like this, and it's always been that way. And, and again, smart people writing arguments that we have to do everything that we used to do because look at, we used to do it. 
I think I've made my point. Um, I really think that we need to sit down and have a conversation about where we've been and where we're going. And I think we need it within the center-right and then perhaps broader uh, uh, as well. Uh, and people on the left might be more willing to rethink things too if they thought that the guys on the right were at least open to a conversation. And again, I'm not... I haven't thought through... You guys have come up with the, the scenarios that, that you would advocate for. I think I'm... Si- I'm simply saying, why don't we start by thinking about it and asking some questions? And the advocates of the status quo seem hesitant to have the conversation. And I, I just worry about the strength of the argument of somebody who thinks that if they had a conversation, no one would like them. This is the whole uh, Honecker, the former leader in East Germany, his <clears throat> wife said, oh, I think you should um, open the Berlin Wall. And he was terribly confused because she was a loyal party member. And then he said, ah, how sweet of you. You just want to be alone with me. Um, <laughs> you know, these people who think they know how the argument's going to go and that no one agrees with them are not running a very strong argument. All right. Well, thank you all for coming. Again, Hill staff, if you're interested in Cato Publications, you can see me or Brandon Arnold at the back door there. And um, please join me in thanking our speakers today. Thank you.